Good morning. It is Wednesday, December 6, 2017. It is St. Nicholas Day. This is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today, in the second part of our show, we'll be visiting with Gary Mishuda, author and Catholic apologist, about the Catholic Bible and some of the things that make it different from Protestant Bibles. That show portion of our show will be pre-recorded, so we won't be able to take any phone calls during the second part of the interview. But during our first part of the show, we are live today, and we will be talking with Robert Rogers in just a second, who will be at St. Jerome's Catholic Church in Waco. Uh, this will be at 6.30 p.m. Oh, it's this Sunday, December 10th. December 10th. And um, he will be offering up an Advent evening of reflection. Good morning, Dr. Thaddeus Romanski. How are you this morning? Hey, good morning, Deacon Mike. Great to have you on uh, and great to be talking with you. Did you wake up this morning to find nuts and apples and oranges in your slippers? Uh, oranges, yes. Apples, a candy cane, and the kids got some chocolate St. Nicholas's. St. Nicholas, actual St. Nicholas Hollow St. Nicholas's from Germany. Pretty cool. It makes me remind, uh, be reminded of my childhood because this is every St. Nicholas Day we woke up to that. This is a big and, deal. Yes. Well, I want to go ahead and welcome Robert Rogers to the show. And um, good morning. How are you? Uh, I am blessed by the grace of God. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Deacon Mike and Thaddeus. Good morning, Robert. Hey, did you uh, do anything special for St. Nicholas today? Well, already had the apples and oranges, and the day's off to a great start. Thank God. I went for a beautiful walk this morning in the brisk northern Indiana cold, about 25 degrees wind chill, so we're feeling it here. Yes. Now, you're going to be speaking at St. Jerome's this Sunday, December 10th, 630 to 830, um, giving them an Advent evening of reflection. We really encourage everyone in Waco to come out and hear Robert because he has a uh, a heartrending story, but also one that shows the mysterious, profound ways that God works. We've got just a short time this morning, Robert. Can you briefly give people your story that led you into why you're why you're doing what you're doing today? Sure. And it's really God's story through each of our lives, and mine is just one of many. I never could have imagined sharing in front of people now. I'm a shy, reserved introvert and grew up as the youngest of eight children and kind of like being in the shadows. I play piano and I kind of like being uh, in the orchestra pit or off the stage and that kind of thing. And so it's amazing how God often uses our weakness to display his strength. And even as we look at the Holy Family, Mary and Joseph, and we, we love to paint a beautiful picture of Christmas and yet they had a lot of struggles, of course, uh, having to travel some upwards of 100 miles you know, with Mary pregnant and, and no room at the inn and so on and so forth. And all of us have a lot of difficulties this time of year. It can be especially difficult for those who have lost loved ones. And so I pray what I share on Sunday night resonates with people's hearts. And it's a story of family. I love family, always wanted to have a big family. And uh, I married uh, a girl from Kansas, uh, after I'd met her in all places of Boston, playing the piano, and I'll share a lot more detail on Sunday night, of course, but uh, we married and moved to California. Uh, I was fresh out of engineering school, had a technical degree and working in Silicon Valley, and uh, God bless us with a family, and none of them ever came easily, and each one of our children had their own trials along the way. Uh, we had four altogether. We moved from 
California to Kansas City. And uh, one of our children had Down syndrome, named Zachary. And then uh, we adopted a special needs orphan from China named Alina. And so there in the summer of 2003, uh, upwards of uh, 11 years of marriage at this point and four children ages 8, 5, 3, and 1, we had traveled about three hours to a relative's wedding in Wichita, Kansas. And uh, it was a drought that summer, and we were all just praying for rain, and suddenly it all seemed to hit at once. I believe it was Hurricane Isabella that just sort of parked over the Midwest and dumped an inordinate amount of rain on the Flint Hills of Kansas, and upwards of nine inches within a few hours. And as you well appreciate in Texas, there's just nowhere for that rain to go, and it formed, a, unbeknownst to us, a flash flood across the freeway. And in the darkness on our way home, this wall of water from a flash flood washed our minivan and other vehicles off that Kansas Turnpike, Interstate 35, and into the deluge. And it washed me and my wife and our oldest daughter out of the car. And there I was tumbling in the water and just feeling like I was in somebody else's movie, someone else's life. It felt completely surreal. And yet, oddly enough, uh, it felt peaceful. And that sounds strange to even say, but those who have had a near-death experience can probably relate that as we sing, though I walk through the valley of a shadow of death and um, though the flood waters engulf me, he is with us. Be not afraid. I am with you. And he was with me that night. Well, somehow I was washed ashore, and by the grace of God, we are talking right now. Um, but they ushered me to a hospital there in Emporia, Kansas, by ambulance and searched and rescued searched in and tried to rescue my family. And in the middle of the night, an officer and a chaplain came to my room with the uh, horrific news that they had found our minivan a mile and a half from the freeway and upside down. And three of our young children were still in their car seats and dead. And they said, Robert, we need to ask you to identify their bodies. And as a parent, that's every parent's worst nightmare. I mean, all my blood just completely went to my toes, and I felt numb. I mean, at first I couldn't even cry. I was just stunned. And they took me down this long hallway to the ER, and there before me was our son, Zachary, five years old, with Down syndrome. Our son, Nicholas, three years old. Our daughter, Alina, from China, still one year old. We only had her for eight short months. And I had to exclusively identify all three of them. And a few hours later, they came to my room and said, we found McKenna, our oldest daughter, who just turned eight, and uh, she was a short distance from a minivan. So all four of my children had died in an instant. And where do you do? Where do you run when something like that happens? And I guess that's a hope that I pray I can transmit and convey on Sunday night at the Advent Evening of Reflection, is that amidst that horrific moment, God was there. He was with me. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. And even though we do walk through that valley of a shadow of death, we don't have to fear the evil. Yes, yes, death can sting. It can hurt. But the grave has no victory. And Jesus lives within us. And that's what gives me hope. A few days later, they found my wife, Melissa, two miles from the freeway. And this retention pond that had tripled in size. So here I was completely alone. Uh, all that I had lived for and hoped for, a large family and a thriving family, was completely gone. And I just sort of threw up my hands and said, as we often sing, here I am, Lord. Is it I, Lord? What do you want me to do? I'm willing to go or do whatever you want me to do. I tried to go back to the engineering world, but it just didn't seem to fit any longer. 
that wasn't my passion. My passion was my family. So one by one, people just started asking me to come to their church, their Sunday school, their pancake breakfast, their community, and just say, how in the world could you keep your faith after a horrific ordeal like that? And I'd never done this before. I had shared uh, their eulogies at their funeral and just talked about each of their lives. And so I thought, well, I'll just kind of do that. And I held up poster boards of each of our family members and talked about our lives and shared our faith. And one by one, people's lives seemed to be encouraged and transformed and infused with hope from God that if he can make it through, then so can I. And here we are 14 years later and Thaddeus and Deacon Mike, but by the grace of Almighty God, I'm still sharing God's good news through our family story. I've shared over 1,100 times as best I can track all around the country and even in several other countries around the world. And uh, over 270-some thousand people, just a few at a time, usually just 50 or 100, a couple hundred. But each life is important, and I pray and fast every time before I come and speak because I know everyone's hurting. People have lost loved ones. People have lost their jobs or their home or people have lost their health or the whole family through what I've heard called the living death of divorce or how their hearts must bleed every day. And we're just looking for some semblance of hope. And so I pray that what I share on Sunday night will be able to convey the hope of God into people's hearts. Robert, thank you so much for giving us a taste of your story. I know it, it cuts me to the heart every time I hear it. It, it puts in perspective my... Uh, silly frustrations that I was having with my children this morning before I headed into to work. Um, I'm going to go home and make sure I embrace every single one of them uh, this, yeah. this evening. Thank you for talking with us. Um, again, you're going to be speaking on Sunday night, December 10th at St. Jerome's in Waco. Please come out and, and hear Robert's story. Let him uh, infuse the hope of God into you through his perseverance and tell us briefly before we go this morning, Robert, about your Mighty in the Land Foundation, just what briefly what it does. Sure. Uh, well, there's actually two ministries. Mighty in the Land Ministry is what I do in coming to share and to speak, and I don't charge anything. I come in complete faith. I don't have an agent, don't charge fees. And I even offer uh, three books that I've written uh, to anybody for anything, uh, even for free. And so if you just need some material that might help you, you're welcome to come freely and just take freely. Uh, I also established a foundation back in 2004 after I visited India and the tsunami-stricken regions of that country, just with a vision to uh, sponsor at least five orphanages around the world and honor my five heavenly family members. And uh, as God so often do, does, he takes our vision and says, okay, well, let's multiply that like the loaves and fishes and do above and beyond that. And by the grace of Almighty God, uh, we've sponsored over eight orphan homes uh, on eight countries around the world and granted over $477,000 to help care for orphans and special needs children, including here in the United States as well. And so it's just phenomenal what God has done just through a simple guy like me and a simple vision. But uh, when we give him our heart, when we give him our brokenness, uh, just the loaves and fishes or just a few crumbs left over, and just say, Lord, this is what I got. He'll say, okay, I'll take that, your sacrificial offering, bless it, multiply it, and do more than you could imagine through it. Thank you, Robert, for being on. I encourage everyone to, if you're in the Waco area, come see the Advent Evening of Reflection. It's going to be absolutely awe-inspiring and inspirational. We're going to have to go 
and move into a break in a second. And uh, Robert, again, thank you for being on. On the other side, we will be talking to Gary Machuda. And again, that portion of the program is pre-recorded, so we won't be able to take any phone calls. So I will see you all on the other side. Have a good morning, Robert, and have a safe journey to, to uh, Waco. Bye-bye now. Thank you. God bless you. Welcome back to the Red Sea Roundup. As I mentioned earlier, this segment of our show is going to be pre-recorded, so we're not going to be able to take any phone calls. And we are speaking with Mr. Gary Machuda, and uh, he is an author and a Catholic apologist who's uh, based out of southern, uh, southeast Michigan, and, uh, where he and his wife, Christine, and their three uh, kids live. Welcome, Gary. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing very well, and I'm still trying to get over the fact that the year's almost over. We're talking about <laughs> Advent. We're talking about Christmas, and uh, I just took down the tree. <laughs> it seems like it, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Every year, it's getting shorter and shorter between those times. My wife keeps kidding that we're just going to throw a blanket over it now and just pull it off in a couple of weeks. <laughs> That's a good idea. I'll have to try that. <laughs> well, the one of the reasons we were going to get together and talk is uh, because on Halloween, we had the commemoration of the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. And uh, I thought it would be helpful to have someone on who uh, is an expert on the Deuterocanon, the books that are not found in the Protestant Bibles and talk a little bit about how that came to be and uh, whether or not it is true that the Catholic Church removed them uh, or added them or whether it was removed during the Reformation. So how do you answer that question? Ah, well, I answer it by writing a couple of books. <laughs> uh, Short well, books. you know, the... the yeah, well, yeah, they, um, well, they, they, there's definitely a lot of information. Yeah, when I, I heard that question over and over again about whether these books were added or were they removed, and it really is the one of the most important questions of apologetics, defending the faith uh, between Catholics and Protestants. And I figured, well, this question's been asked so many times, and it's so important. We really can come up with a definitive answer because it's really a matter of history. So, uh, so what I did uh, about ten years ago, I sat down and put together a book, you know, the Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger, and I attempt to answer that in three ways. First, I figured, well, if these books were scripture or weren't scripture, uh, they must have been used as scripture or not before the Council of Trent. So. I traced the history of the Deuterocanon throughout church history all the way up to uh, uh, the Council of Trent in the 1500s. And then I figured, well, 
we can look at the acts of Trent and because there's diaries and there's an official acts and we know we can figure out at least what were the discussions of the Council of Fathers regarding the Old Testament canon. If they were going to add books, certainly there would have been discussion. You know, people would have put that forward and and people would have rejected it. And then lastly we could find out whether or not Protestants removed these books by looking at the history of the Dero Canon from uh, Martin Luther onwards. And uh, what I believe I show in that book and, and the other books that I've written on the topic is uh, definitively the Catholic Church did not add these books. These books were always held as inspired scripture and used to confirm doctrine uh, from the very beginning. And it really was the Protestants, beginning with Martin Luther, who rejected these books. They demoted it down to a level of what they call the Apocrypha, which just means human writings. And then eventually they removed them from Protestant Bibles so that today Catholics and Protestants, we don't hold on to the same set of books. Our Old Testament Bibles have seven books and a couple of chapters in Daniel and Esther that uh, Protestant Bibles don't have. There's one other thing that uh, relates to this. Uh, wasn't there some discussion among the Reformers, especially Luther, of removing books from the New Testament also? Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, he he disparaged uh, the Epistle of Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation, the so-called Deuterocanon of the New Testament. And uh, it appears that he kind of wanted to demote them as well, but Protestants uh, kind of prevailed, and they remained in Protestant Bibles as part of the canonical scripture. But unfortunately, the same is not true for the Old Testament. But that does lend credence to the Catholic position that we did not add them, that someone removed those books out of the Old Testament in the same way that there was discussion of removing books from the New Testament. Yeah, exactly. In fact, um, the first uh, the first early father in church history to ever consider the Deuterocanon to be quote-unquote apocrypha is St. Jerome in, in, at the end of the, you know, the late 300s. Um, he was commissioned by the Pope to make a translation, a fresh translation of the Scripture into Latin, and that later becomes the Latin Vulgate, which is still the official translation of the Church. Uh, but uh, Jerome knew Hebrew, and, and when he started translating the Bible, he noticed that these books were missing from the Hebrew text that the rabbis had. And so he, he came up with an idea called Hebrew truth, that if something's not found in the Hebrew uh, text they had in front of them, then they weren't part of the original inspired corpus. So he rejected them as apocrypha. And the, the Christian church at that time re, reacted to Jerome, with uh, several uh, local councils in North Africa, most notably the councils of Carthage and Hippo. And these Catholic councils reaffirmed the historic Christian canon, which included all the books of the New Testament that we have today and all the books that the Catholic Church accepts. Now, this is back in the 380s, 390s, long, long, long before the, the Protestant Reformation. And so... Um, uh, you know, these books were always considered sacred and canonical, but unfortunately Jerome kind of uh, cast doubt on them, and he wrote several prefaces to the books of the Bible, 
in his Latin Vulgate that stated that the Deuterocanon canon is apocrypha, they're not inspired, it can't be used to confirm doctrine. And so as we move to closer and closer to the time of Reformation, you start to see some Christian authors kind of following Jerome, or at least repeating his words, that these books aren't, in some sense, fully Scripture, even though historically the Church has always accepted it. And uh, in, my, in the new edition of Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger, I actually expand the section on Martin Luther, because not very many people know this, but Martin Luther actually flip-flops on the Deuterocanon. Um, originally, in his... Uh, debates he had with the Church, he actually quotes and cites the Deuterocanon to confirm doctrine. And he calls this, actually in one preface, he, he actually says, I'll only follow the canonical scriptures, and then he quotes the Book of Tobit, or he quotes wisdom. So for a time, Martin Luther was very much on the Catholic side of things. He accepted these books as inspired scripture. He entered them into debate to confirm doctrine. And uh, But the big flip-flop changed in 1519. And this is at uh, the second Lipsig Disputation. And he was up against a Catholic theologian uh, known, who was named Johann Eck. And I guess in German, Eck means corner. And uh, Eck really lives up to his name in this debate, because he, he corners Luther on several points. And while they were discussing the doctrine of purgatory, Eck cites several old, uh, New and Old Testament texts for purgatory. And one of the Old Testament texts is 2 Maccabees 12.46, that it's a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead, that they may be loosed from their sin. And uh, it's really interesting, because in this debate, Luther disputes ex-interpretation of all the other scriptural passages, except for Second Maccabees. And there he says that uh, there's no proof of purgatory in any portion of sacred scripture that can be entered into argument and serve as proof. The book of Maccabees, not being of the canon, has weight with the faithful, but it won't uh, prevail against the obstinate. In other words, for the first time in Luther's career, suddenly the deuterocanon can't be entered into debate and serve as proof. And uh, so I think part of that was because Maccabees very clearly affirms the Catholic understanding of purgatory. But later in the debate, when they debate indulgences, uh, Eck also cites Second Maccabees. And, of course, you remember the 95 Thesis, uh, October 31st, the, on the 500th anniversary, the 95 Thesis was all about indulgences. So I think what happened was Luther kind of understood that if he allows Second Maccabees in debate, uh, Eck will be able to demonstrate that indulgences are biblical. And if he does that, then the whole Protestant cause has ended. So he uh, basically denies it. He appeals to St. Jerome, and he says, Jerome believed these things to be apocrypha. And, um, and from that point on, Protestantism could never allow these books to be held on par with sacred scripture. In a way, the primary question of this is one of authority. Ultimately, who gets to decide what sacred scripture is? And at one point, Luther was in agreement that there was a set book, uh, uh, a set canon, 
of which it was inspired. And then he had to change his mind because of the conversation with Eck. But the question of who has the authority to determine this really was never resolved. Yeah. Well, actually, the very next thing Eck does once he quotes Jerome is Eck points out that these North African councils affirmed these books as canonical scripture. And uh, Luther really had no other place to go at that point. He basically said, well, the Church can't make a book canonical that it isn't by its own nature. And you're absolutely right. It's, at that point, Luther no longer deferred to the historic understanding of the Christian Bible, but really kind of put himself as his own authority that he was so sure that his understanding of justification by faith alone and that indulgences uh, contradict the gospel, that he was willing to not only reject church authority, but even bend the historic Christian canon so that it fits his own theology. One thing, uh, especially with Luther's emphasis on the importance uh, and following uh, Jerome, of course, but the importance of them being originally written in Hebrew, to a certain extent, didn't the Dead Sea Scrolls sort of counteract that argument because we see some of the uh, Hebrew documents actually following closer with the Septuagint than they do with the Masoretic text? Yeah, well, actually, yeah, it's, it's a little, slightly different, though. See, what happened back at the fifth... Uh, you know, the end of the um, fourth century, was St. Jerome only had, there was only one Hebrew text in circulation. And uh, that was because the rabbis, when they formed their own canon, uh, roughly in the second century, second Christian century, uh, they adopted a single Hebrew text, and basically all the other texts disappeared, so that by the time Jerome comes on the scene, it was only circulated in this one text. And so Jerome thought, well, this must be identical to the original, because all these other Greek translations, they're all different, and and they seem to be translating this Hebrew text. Uh, so he kind of went with the, his Hebrew verite. Now, what's really interesting to me is that the Church couldn't demonstrate that he was wrong. Uh, all they could do was to go on sacred tradition, that these books had always been held as sacred scripture, and and there was evidence that it was part of the original deposit of faith handed down by Jesus and his apostles to the church. But it couldn't demonstrate that his Hebrew verity uh, or Hebrew truth uh, idea was wrong until the 1940s, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were uh, discovered. And there, like you said, uh, we found out that actually the Old Testament existed in several different Hebrew versions. It wasn't just one text tradition. And also that some of the uh, Greek translations, like the Greek Septuagint, which, by the way, is uh, the Old Testament text that the New Testament uh, is kind of its preferred text. It uses it more than any other. That there is evidence in the Dead Sea Scrolls that the Septuagint is actually a very literal translation of an ancient Hebrew text tradition that's now lost. So when Jerome kind of pitted the Greek Septuagint against this Hebrew text, he was really pitting two different uh, textual traditions against each other. And in fact, he kind of dismisses the most ancient one, the Septuagint. 
but he, he didn't know. You know, he was just operating on whatever information he had. But the church got it right because it stuck by tradition. And eventually in the 1940s, uh, you know, now we can demonstrate Jerome was absolutely wrong in his idea of uh, Hebrew truth. One of the things that has always struck me is that in eliminating especially uh, Wisdom and Maccabees, which have always struck me as two of the more Hebrew books in the Old Testament, because Maccabees, of course, is you know the revolt against the Greek authority, and um, Wisdom, the whole story of uh, the diaspora in Alexandria and the importance of maintaining their Jewish heritage. It's striking to me that those would be ruled as not being part of the Hebrew tradition. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, and uh, and there's the possible reasons for that. Uh, you know, there's this um, theory, in, or uh, I shouldn't say theory, it's really a myth, that the rabbis got together around 100 A.D. and, and had a council that determined which books go in and out. And some people try to speculate, well, what was their criteria? And one is that uh, anything that was written in Hebrew should be rejected, so wisdom would be rejected. Or that uh, the, the Pharisees didn't like uh, Rome, the pagan Romans. And uh, in Second Maccabees, there's some favorable things said about the Romans, so they threw that out. But But that's actually a myth. But you're absolutely right, though. These books are... They're they're absolutely one hundred percent Jewish in their perspective, and uh, you know it's sad that uh, because uh, they affirm certain doctrines that the Protestant reformers denied, uh, that Protestants now have an incomplete Bible. They have an incomplete Old Testament, and uh, there are many things that you know uh, relate to what the tradition of the church has been for two thousand years that we find in those missing books that don't make any sense when you take those out, but they are part of the living tradition of the church. That's right. Yeah. In fact, uh, not Why Catholic Bibles are Rigor, but another book I wrote called A Case for the Deuterocanon. Uh, I went through uh, the early church fathers for the first 400 years to see, well, I wonder, I'm sure there's probably a dozen or so fathers that use the Deuterocanon to confirm doctrine. And I came up with actually several hundred uh, instances where the Deuterocanon is used. In fact, let me give you one example. Um, it appears that the book, the Epistle of Hebrews, uses an idea from the Book of Wisdom. In Hebrews 1.3, it describes the Son as the refulgence of the Father's glory. And the word refulgence there means like brightness of the Father's glory. It's a very rare word in the Greek Bible. It's only used once in the New Testament and once in the Greek Old Testament in the Book of Wisdom, 726, where it says that wisdom is the refulgence of the eternal light of the Father. So uh, so for one thing, the New Testament borrows this idea from wisdom. And it also makes a very important Christological point, because if you think of the Father as an eternal light, and the Son as its brightness, that means that there never was a time where the Father did not have the Son. The, the Son is eternally generating, or the Father eternally generates the Son. 
St. Augustine has a great line. He says, show me a fire without brightness, and I'll show you the Father without a son. So you can see, even in you know, Wisdom 7.26, that's used in Hebrews 1.3, that the Son is eternal, that he's begotten of the Father, and there never was a time where the Son did not exist. He, he's always with the Father. And, uh, of course, this kind of echoes what we read in the Creed during Mass, when we say, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. That idea of light from light, this brightness from the flame or the eternal light of the Father uh, actually comes up in the creed. But for a Protestant who doesn't have the Book of Wisdom, where does this idea of light from light come from, right? It's really part of Catholic tradition. It's how we understand the Trinity actually comes in some ways from the Book of Wisdom. And the the creed is accepted by a large number of Protestant denominations. And again, you would struggle to explain how those phrases got into the creed without that historical tradition of the church. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and you know what's funny is there is a kind of uh, parallel with Judaism, because we're coming up in December, and this is the time for the Jewish feast of Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights. And Jews today, you know, as they did throughout uh, past 2,000 years, celebrate Hanukkah. But what's interesting is there's no biblical basis for the Feast of Hanukkah. Why? Because that's actually found in the books of Maccabees. So uh, so you, just like life, God from God, life from light, true God from true God, kind of comes from the Deuterocanon that Protestants recite. Lots of them recite the Creed, but there's no direct biblical basis for those statements. Uh, you know, in, in rabbinical Judaism, they celebrate Hanukkah, and yet there's no biblical basis for it in their Bible, but there is a biblical basis in the Catholic Bible, because we have Maccabees. But I think this is, uh, again, uh, we see how closely Catholicism is tied to the Jewish faith, in light of their maintaining these traditions, like Hanukkah, in the same way the Church maintains these traditions without necessarily saying there has to be an exact quote in Scripture to support this because we have the tradition that supports it, which, again, we're missing in Protestantism, which has says it has to be literally in the Bible. That's right. In fact, yeah, the, the best example of a tradition— that all Protestants accept, but uh, is nowhere found in the Bible, is the canon, the table of contents. Uh, there's no inspired work in the Bible that gives the list of all the books that are Scripture. The only way we know which books are inspired by God and should be referred to as the Word of God is because that is part of that tradition that was handed on by Jesus and his inspired apostles to the Church. And without that... Uh, you know the issue of the canon. Uh, how do you how do you figure out which books belong and which ones don't? Ultimately, for Luther, it came down to which books agree with, you know, which books preached Christ as he understood it and which ones didn't, and that determined for the canon what Luther was. But the problem with that is, well, that means any Protestant could uh, change the Bible or the contents of the Bible based on how he or she feels. You know, so in a way, without sacred tradition that's anchored in Jesus and the apostles, 
the the Bible kind of becomes undermined, if not destroyed. And that, I think, is the great challenge for Protestantism, is how do you affirm a canon that isn't secure? Because ultimately, if another great theologian, well, I'm not sure if a great theologian qualifies with Luther, but a theologian right. with a firm opinion states that these books also should be removed. Say, for instance, Revelation, which was one of Luther's uh, pains, if they decide this needs to be gone. By what justification yep. do you say we can't do that? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and the fact, uh, you know, church history, there's lots of examples of groups that changed the, the canon of Scripture to fit their beliefs. Like, uh, there's an early heresy known as Marcionism that believed that there was a good God and an evil God. The good God was the God of the New Testament. The evil God was the God of the Old Testament. So they rejected the whole Old Testament, and they only accepted one of the Gospels, the Gospel of Luke, which was adulterated. They cut out some parts that didn't fit with their thinking, and the writings of Paul, and that was their Bible. Then there's another group called the Ebonites, who were uh, Christians who wanted to follow the Old Testament law, so they accepted the Old Testament uh, and the Gospels, but they refused to accept the writings of Paul. So you have all these groups throughout history, I mean, it could be multiplied, like the Gnostics and others, that tried to tailor the Word of God to fit their theology. And uh, so, in a way, you know, Martin Luther isn't the first person in, in church history to do so, but, um, but it, it shows that, you know, at root, I think he understood that his doctrine really wasn't biblical in the sense of fitting the historic Christian Bible. It had to be tailored to fit his theology. And I would think that you could make a case that the story of St. Jerome's antithesis to placing the uh, books written originally in Greek in with the canon actually makes a case for the Catholic tradition because in spite of the fact that he was probably the great expert on Scripture at the time, more of an expert than the Pope, more of an expert than some of the other theologians, but it was the Pope's word which defined the canon, not St. Jerome. Yeah, that's true. That's a very, very good point. And, uh, yeah, it, it, if you could think about it, I mean, the Church basically wouldn't budge for uh, Jerome. But it also, another point, too, and and I think this shows uh, the Church in good light, is that the Church also didn't stamp out Jerome's opinion. He, they allowed his opinions to be circulated because he was a scholar. You know, they didn't try to, to cover up or anything like that. Uh, they just, uh, I guess, believed that he's entitled to his views, even though his views were counter to the ancient Church. Which sort of flies in the face of people that argue that the church suppressed anything that was anti what it was teaching and that it burned <laughs> everything. Uh, why would you even yeah, leave those exactly. notes? Uh, exactly. But uh, again, uh, I think uh, it's helpful, you know, to have your book uh, for people to be able to understand, you know, the things that we normally hear, especially living in a mostly Protestant culture. The things we hear about the Bible are not necessarily true, and we need to investigate, you know, how this actually 
came about in order to understand when somebody says, you know, well, the Catholic Church added these books uh, because they prove whatever point they're trying to make, rather than this has always been part of the tradition of the Church. Right. In fact, uh, you know, an interesting development, this was actually hard for me to write in the book because I kept getting angry as I was doing it, was following what happened to these books within Protestantism. I think most Protestants don't realize that the Deuterocanon was present in the earliest uh, Protestant uh, versions of the Bible. You know, it was in Luther's German translation, it was in uh, the first editions of the King James Bible, Geneva Bible, uh, some of the early English translations. They're all there as part of the Apocrypha, but it was still part of the Bible. They were, it was put into an appendix between the Old and New Testament, which, by the way, was different than the ancient Bible, which didn't make any distinction whatsoever. Um, but what happens in Protestantism is, as you go through history, what you find is uh, it's slow, these books slowly begin to be pushed out of the Bible. They're, the appendix is moved from between the Old and New Testaments, put into the back of the Bible. And then it wasn't until like the 1820s, with the advent of uh, these uh, philanthropic societies known as Bible societies, that the Deuterocanon uh, Deutero or the Apocrypha was finally eliminated from Protestant Bibles. And uh, these, what these societies were made for was they wanted to try to reproduce copies of the Bible and disseminate them far and wide. And since the, many Protestants had their own particular kinds of translations and footnotes to avoid any kind of wrangling, they had a, a rule that these societies would only print the Bible and the Bible alone, without comments or anything, anything else, just the Scripture. Well, in the 1820s, uh, the, the, uh, there were some Scottish Bible societies, uh, particularly Edinburgh Bible Society, who raised a stink about uh, this law because they said, look, you're printing Bibles with this Apocrypha in it, and we don't believe the Apocrypha is the Word of God, so you're violating your own bylaws by including things that's not, strictly speaking, Scripture. And so after a lot of pressure, the British Informed Bible Society decided to cut all funding to any Protestant group that decided to print the Bible with the Deuterocanon. And uh, and what happens is that from that point on, most Protestant Bibles no longer had these books. Uh, now, in Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger, I actually look at the committee statements, because I wanted to find out, well, what was the basis? What was Edinburgh Bible Society arguing, really, about these books? What was their main arguments against them? And it really boils down to three arguments. Uh, the first is that these books present themselves as sacred scripture. They, they present themselves as the Word of God, they give messages from angels, and they use phraseology that looks awful lot like scripture, which is kind of funny because today there's Protestants who say, well, no, the Deuterocanon can't be scripture because it doesn't sound like scripture. Well, actually, that was one of the reasons why they got them out of their Bible. Uh, the second reason is that the Deuterocanon teaches uh, doctrines that are peculiarly Catholic, like purgatory, indulgences, prayers to the saints, uh, the efficacy of good works, things like that. So they said, if we print Bibles with the Apocrypha in it, 
there will be Protestants who will become Catholic, that they'll read these books of Scripture, they'll see these doctrines, and they'll actually become Catholic. And they actually thought that this occurred and was occurring. And then the final reason was because the Catholic Church says these books are canonical Scripture. And they basically said, look, if we're going to be printing Bibles with these books in them, we're aiding and abetting Rome. And so I think that was probably the the biggest argument of all, that in a sense, by Protestant Bibles containing these books, in a sense, they kind of, uh, they were supporting the Roman Catholic doctrine that they're Scripture. And so from that point on, uh, they cut funding, and Protestant Bibles ceased to have these books. So today, I think, and this really made me angry, because I think a lot of my evangelical friends around here are completely unaware that the Bibles they have are missing books that weren't even in the original Protestant Bibles, let alone in the early the earliest Christian Bibles. And the fate of these books were handed were handled by people that most of them don't even know. They aren't even aware of these controversies. And especially when you think of uh, the people that ultimately made those decisions were in no way members of any hierarchy in any of the churches. It, they were businesses who made decisions. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, can you imagine if uh, a couple of fairly prominent uh, Protestant preachers decided to, let's say, get rid of seven books of the Old Testament or get rid of the book of Revelation, and, and all Protestant publishers went along with that? Uh, you know, I think that would rise, you know, People would be up in arms. I think Protestants would be up in arms, uh, but they. Um, but this happened, and uh, eventually, uh, it was they were taken out of Protestant Bibles. And like I said, most Protestants today aren't even aware that their Bibles aren't the same as the historic Protestant Bible. You had mentioned footnotes, and I remember in your book, The Case for the Deuterocanon, I don't know, remember if you had this also in Why Catholic uh, Bibles Are Bigger, but early on, even the Protestant Bibles that had footnotes at times referred back to what is they referred to as the Apocrypha to prove points in Scripture. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, I, I don't go into that quite as much in uh, why Catholic Bibles are bigger, uh, but you're absolutely right, though. I mean, the early Protestant Bibles had footnotes that referred back to the, the so-called Apocrypha and had footnotes from the Apocrypha to the New Testament. So they knew the New Testament used these books, uh, and it, I think that's a tacit admission that uh, that they believed that such was so. But um, like I said, once the... Uh, Apocrypha disappeared from Protestant Bibles, so did the cross-references. So, And that's another argument that's sometimes brought up against the Deuterocanon is, well, the New Testament never uses the Deuterocanon. You know, it never alludes to it. Well, all you have to do is pull up a, you know, a 1611 King James Bible or one of these early English translations, and you can see right there they got footnotes. And I think... Uh... Overall, it is so important to remember that there is such a intimate connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, as far as we as Catholics are concerned, that you cannot look at the Old Testament with any other lens than through the New Testament, and 
the New Testament so often becomes meaningless without the Old Testament. And you cannot just arbitrarily pull pieces out of that connection and expect it to be complete. That's true. Yeah, and uh, not only that, but uh, what Protestants don't realize is that when they read the New Testament, they're reading it against a Jewish backdrop of, of Jewish beliefs that didn't exist for over three centuries before the time of Christ. You know, from the Catholic Bible, our Old Testament actually goes all the way up to, oh, about 50 B.C., like 50 years before the birth of Jesus. So historically, you can see the doctrinal development that goes throughout Scripture all the way up to Jesus' day. And so I think that's why when Catholics read the New Testament, certain things just jump out at us because this is part of the air that we breathe, that we accept these later doctrinal developments. But by Protestantism rejecting seven of these books, the, there's a kind of artificiality where the Old Testament for them ends at the time of Malachi, uh, several centuries before Christ. And so when they read the New Testament, they don't have that, uh, those echoes from later Judaism. And I, I think that's why certain passages for us jump out as far as purgatory and things like that where for Protestants who are really well-soaked and understand the Bible, uh, because they're missing these books, it, they, they miss those cues in the New Testament. I think you raise a very excellent point, especially looking at the book, uh, the first and second Maccabees. The mm -hmm. whole idea of the resistance to being forced to give up the traditions of your faith, uh, that's rampant in Maccabees. I mean, the woman with the seven sons, you know, being willing to see them die rather than eat pork. But that notion right. that our faith identity is tied into the tradition of the faith rings true for us as Catholics. And missing those may contribute somewhat to the lack of a sense of connection to a traditional faith in the Protestant communities. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, you know, just to piggyback on your idea about the Maccabean martyrs, you know, the martyrs are actually mentioned in Hebrews 11, verse 35. Uh, Hebrews 11 is the great faith chapter where all the Old Testament heroes of, you know, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and it just goes throughout history. Uh, mentioning the exploits of David and Joshua and Gideon and so on. And then in verse 35, it says that uh, some were tortured and refused to accept release that they might rise again to a better life. And if you look in the Old Testament, the Protestant Old Testament, you don't find anyone who was tortured and refused release for the sake of better resurrection. But that's exactly what you find in Second Maccabees chapter 7. In fact, there are some uh, words that are borrowed from this. So we know that the epistle is actually referring to this biblical text, Second Maccabees 7. And again, that's, I think that's a great example of how those echoes are gone, because for a Catholic, when we read that verse, we think, oh, this is the, the mother with her seven children that were slain. But for a Protestant who doesn't have these books, who are these people? You know, there, there's something missing. There's a disconnect between the, the New Testament and the Old Testament without the Deuterocanon. 
Yes, and you might make the case that, you know, there is a distinct portion of your faith that is absent, that links us to that seamless story of salvation that, as Catholics, we have an understanding of, but that seems to be missing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah, that's you're absolutely right. It's uh, without that continuity of these books. Um, yeah, there there seems like uh, you know God suddenly becomes silent and doesn't talk to his people for several hundred years. Then Jesus appears, uh, which is kind of odd. You know, yes, <laughs> you wonder yes. why God stopped inspiring Scripture for a few hundred years, uh, only to restart with the New Testament. Uh, you know, for the Catholic. Uh, it's like you said, it's kind of a seamless garment where one flows right into the other. Well, we're at the end of our time for this interview. I want to thank you uh, again. Thank you for your contribution to your books because they're absolutely wonderful in helping us to understand our uh, tradition of the uh, canon of the church and understand that it is a gift of the church by God. And um, it uh, is a pleasure talking to you all the time. And uh, I hope you're willing to come back sometime. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the pleasure is all mine. And uh, I want to remind all our listeners that uh, next week, Gene Wilhelm will be hosting the Red Sea Roundup. And remember to tune in for that. Until then, when calculating the many ways you might share your time, talents, and treasure with the people of God, always round up. 